This recording is from Fintech Nexus USA, formerly known as Line of Fintech USA, held at the Javits Center in New York City on May 25th to 26, 2022. It's from the track Web3 and CBDCs, The Future of Money is Here, sponsored by Nidig and is titled Bridging Traditional and Decentralized Finance to Unlock the Most Value for Consumers. Speaking on the session are Trevor Marshall from Current, Dan Reeser from Akala, with moderator Todd Anderson from Fintech Nexus. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to our afternoon track of um, Web3 and CBDCs. I'm your moderator for this session, Todd Anderson, Chief Content Officer at what is now Fintech Nexus, formerly Lended Fintech. Uh, and joining us, we have Dan Reeser of Akala and Trevor Marshall of Current. So maybe give our speakers a hand. All right, so our session is Bridging Traditional and Decentralized Finance to Unlock the Most Value for Consumers. Before we kick into our actual discussion, uh, why don't we do some intros? So, Dan, take it away. Cool. Hey, everybody. Uh, Dan Reeser, uh, Chief Growth Officer at Akala. i um, been at Akala leading our um, kind of BD and marketing teams for about a year and a half. Um, get into a little bit more about Akala in a second, um, but we're kind of a DeFi-focused blockchain built on Polkadot. Um, prior to Akala, I was at Web3 Foundation, where I spent about a, another year and a half working on the Polkadot launch and the launch of our um, other blockchain called Kusama. So thanks for being here. Hey, guys. Uh, Trevor Marshall. I'm the CTO here at Current. Um, and uh, also a huge crypto fan, which is, I think, why I made it onto this panel, which is exciting. Um, and also, Current's doing uh, some cool things um, in, in the crypto space and as we think forward into what we're building. Current is a New York-based fintech. Um, we offer banking services. We've got uh, just over 4 million members here in the U.S. Uh, we're going into year eight now of building this, and I've been here the whole time. Um, so, yeah, happy to be here. All right. So... You know, Trevor, I'm going to stick with you and start off with, you know, our session title is Bridging Traditional and Decentralized Finance. So what are we talking about when we talk about bridging the two worlds? And, and what is the term hi-fi? I think when you guys did your partnership, there was a lot of talk uh, at the time of hybrid finance or hi-fi. If you could just tell us a little bit more about that and, and what you guys mean when you talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So. The sort of the gap between what's happening in the Web3 space is pretty much um, the gap that is the difference between what Web2 is and what Web3 is, which, you know, Web3 being an open data system, there's a lot of value that is currently being built, but there's not a lot of easy ways to access it. And since the since Web3 is predominantly, you know, finance systems, being able to bring actual dollars from a consumer perspective and bringing those all the way through into these open systems is a pretty unsolved problem. We think we have a pretty good shot at accomplishing it, but really hybrid finance is about tying the way that people live their, their lives in terms of the way that their money works um, and being able to provide convenient mechanisms to be a part of these open systems. Um, so yeah, that's really the, the concept of hybrid finance. How we're tackling it is being able to provide that distribution layer. Dan, tell us a little bit more about, you mentioned it in your intro, uh, the Polkadot ecosystem, what that means, cross-chain. You know, tell us a little bit more about that and, and provide a little clarity on what you mean by cross-chain. 
Yeah, so um, I think one thing to mention first, we're in the room about Web 3.0. So even going back to the origins of the coining of the term Web 3, um, if you Google Gavin Wood and what Web 3.0 uh, looks like, it's a blog written in April of 2014. Um, this is when the Web 3 term was kind of coined by Gavin, who was one of the original co-founders of Ethereum. Um, Vitalik, who you, who you may know, um, wrote the white paper for Ethereum, and then Gavin was the one mostly that, that coded Ethereum back um, in 2014, 2015. Then he started imagining, like, what, is a, what does a decentralized internet look like? And that's really what kind of Web 3.0 as a vision um, is. So what he did was then went on from Ethereum and was thinking, okay, what's the next step? How do we scale this? How do we bring this to millions of people, including current customers? Um, and the answer for that was to build an entirely new system from the ground up. So after he invented the Solidity programming language for Ethereum and then launched Ethereum um, along with the Ethereum virtual machine, which is kind of the, the engine behind Ethereum, he went on and created Substrate as a programming language and then created Polkadot as this multi-blockchain kind of universe of connected networks or connected blockchains. Um, so Polkadot itself does kind of two primary things. So number one, it secures blockchains. Any team, including Akala, can just plug into Polkadot's existing security set um, and, and provide that to those teams without them having to do the work to actually go out and, and recruit their own security set. And then number two is it provides native, out-of-the-box, cross-chain transfers. So just like we kind of take for granted in the internet, being able to transfer money from one bank to another, crypto up until now, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these individual networks have been completely isolated and not being able to communicate data or value between each other. So Polkadot is kind of doing, um, kind of solving that problem and connecting these, these networks together. I think that's, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think exactly the technology behind Polkadot is what got us really excited, like crypto, and Current kind of have a, a shared um, history. At Current, like one of the first things we were building back in 2015 was actually sort of an API layer on top of Ripple. It's where we've been since, you know, in, a, in sort of the mindset of what we're building for a long time, sort of what is banking without the banking infrastructure. But the reality is that those two things can't um, be completely disconnected. And we've our mission this whole time has been to figure out how to tie our customers and their outcomes to this these future systems. And what re-inspired us to start looking to how we were going to bring crypto actually into the fold was the cross-chain work um, in the Polkadot ecosystem, because it's the first time that it actually makes sense to be able to bridge different types of platforms together in a secure way. Like every other attempt at this has been pretty... Um, it's it, not feasible is the, the most charitable way um, to put it. Um, and this is the first time that I've actually seen the technology come to the forefront that actually could take centralized assets, take um, sort of disconnected systems and, and, and stitch them together. Um, something I think about a lot, like a lot of the embedded banking concepts um, that exist today are all fundamentally stemming from this concept of open APIs and, and, and the ability for companies to talk to other companies over sort of pre-agreed contracts and keys. XCM, which is the, the sort of messaging format um, in the Polkadot space, is very similar to what OpenAPI or, or Swagger is. And, you know, apologies, I'm an engineer, so that's mostly what I talk about. But um, the sort of unification of how things can speak to each other 
means that we now are in a place that you can build systems in very independent ways um, without requiring these sort of contractual agreements that underpin Web2 connections. Um, so when we look forward, like the, the technology that, that Dan just described is going to be a transformational part of how consumers, even though they don't need to know anything about all of this, these crazy ac acronyms and concepts we've been talking about, um, they'll get the value of that because the technology is now available. Um, and so, yeah, we're focused, like we're laser focused on figuring out the right ways to, to create these bridges. And then that's really the concept of hybrid finance. Yeah, and I'll just add one more thing too. Trevor kind of looks at this from the, the neobank and fintech perspective and from kind of the inside of crypto. Um, I, I look at it, at it in a little bit of a different way. Um, for years since I started coming into this, this kind of industry around 2016, 2017, everyone's talking about mass adoption and how crypto is going to take over the world. But it, it's been very slow because of the UX is one thing that something like Current is going to help improve quite a bit. If anyone in the room has tried to use crypto like on an actual blockchain, the public and private keys and MetaMask and all these wallets, if, you, if you've done it, I'm sure you can't imagine like your mother or grandmother um, doing something like that. It's, it's nearly impossible. So what we're excited about with Current and these kind of hybrid finance um, integrations is to be able to bring crypto to people without them having to actually use public and private keys and kind of mess with the, this like really difficult user experience, meet them where they're already used to the app that they use for their checking account, um, and bring them these new products from this crypto world without kind of just abstracting away the, the complexity of that for them. You said bring them. So are, how much of this is currently happening? How much, how far away, if it's not currently happening, you kind of, what, what does that roadmap look like? Yeah. So on the current side, I'll let Dan speak for the Acala side, but on the current side, we're really focused on how to get ownership into people's hands. And so fairly shortly, um, you'll start seeing some things from current um, that start putting us in this direction. Um, but in terms of like the, the fully realized vision, that's something that's going to still take years to play out because both sides are, are really figuring out how to do this properly together. And that's everything from the technical standpoint, which is actually in a better place than it's ever been. There were a lot of technical gaps, which have now been filled, which is why I'm very bullish on this because it's now is technically feasible, but that we still have gaps around consumer understanding and how to approach the UX of, of some of these more complicated tasks and some regulatory gaps as well that there's not a lot of clarity on today, um, but you know we're going to figure out sort of as we move forward. What, what's the, bef before you, and what's the bigger gap today? Is it the UX gap or the regulatory It gap? is the UX gap because these concepts are fundamentally new. Like the way that I look at it is we're really in the AOL phase. And if current could be like the AOL for um, these Web3 applications, I'd be extremely happy. Um, and it's really about taking the utility and presenting it to customers in a way that um, is actually pretty intuitive. And that's a huge step that still needs to be taken. Um, and we're working pretty hard on, on figuring that out. Yep. And then from our point of view, um, working directly with current as well as kind of the intermediary parties and getting just a lot of the kind of plumbing in place for that bridge between crypto and fintechs to actually happen. So we're working through that. Um, as far as Polkadot and Akala, so Polkadot um, has, been, has been being built for 
actually six years, and just finally about three or four weeks ago, this cross-chain technology just launched. So that, to me, was kind of the, the final step of Polkadot's launch process. And if you've been re reading the news over the last two or three weeks, a lot of stuff has happened in the crypto industry. Um, and it's, bring, it's brought a renewed kind of appreciation for the, the time and uh, importance of security and stability of the Polkadot uh, tech stack. It's been a slow grind for six years, and a lot of the people in the ecosystem, like myself, have begun, we're getting impatient, but now kind of looking back, you appreciate the, the care that's given to auditing and making sure that everything is built correctly because they're building this for the long run, the next 20 plus years. Um, so Polkadot just launched, Akala just launched our um, blockchain on Polkadot at the end of December. So we're about five months into our kind of lifetime. Um, standing up our different products, including a stable coin, which is kind of our, our main product. And we can get into that in a second since that's kind of a hot topic over the last couple of weeks. Um, and then we've got, we're, we're a platform, so there'll be a lot of decentralized finance applications uh, launching on top of Akala that can then plug in to the fintechs of the world. So if there's a money market where you could maybe lend out um, a stablecoin, earn a certain APY, let's say 4%, 6%, um, we can bring that to people within crypto and, and outside of crypto as well. So this is kind of our roadmap for the next year or so. Well, I think you mentioned it, so we might as well jump into uh, what's been in the news lately. I see we have a few questions that have come in from the audience as well. But uh, just on the, the issue with stablecoins and, and what's happened uh, in the news, I know in our prep call we were talking about, it seems as if there's a lot of coverage about stablecoins but can you give us some clarity on kind of the different types of stable coins and, and what might be wrong that might be out there in the news? Because there is this impression that all stable coins might be the same, and that's clearly not the case. Yeah, I've had a lot of practice uh, answering this question over the past few weeks. Um, so first of all, yes, not all stable coins are created equal. Um, I think if you really boil it down, there's three primary categories. So. Number one is fiat-backed stablecoins. So this is a, a stablecoin like USDC um, from an actual entity. So Circle, which is owned by Coinbase, that's who actually facilitates that whole process. They're audited. There's real dollars in a bank account for every dollar that's issued into the crypto market. Um, this is inherently centralized. There's risk of censorship or um, you know, interference with what's going on behind USDC. So that's just the risk that you have. There's always trade-offs, and that's one of the trade-offs with fiat-backed stablecoin. Then uh, the second category is collateralized stablecoins, or mostly over-collateralized stablecoins. So DAI, um, D-A-I on Ethereum, is probably the most well-known version of this. They've been around for five, six years, have weathered every storm that crypto has thrown at them, um, and are kind of the, the longest standing um, decentralized stablecoin backed by real assets. And I'll get into what, how that actually works in a second. Um, AUSD, Akala stablecoin, that's still very new, um, will be similar to DAI, but kind of natively multi-chain, so serving all the blockchains connecting to Polkadot. Um, and that's kind of what we're focused on uh, most right now. So that's two, is over-collateralized. Number three is algorithmic stablecoins. These are stablecoins that are not backed by um, any actual assets. They, they use these algorithms, as they're called, um, to do all this kind of minting and burning of tokens and, and arbitraging to try to buy and sell this, uh, this like kind of a sister token to hedge back towards a dollar. 
what we saw in the last couple of weeks is that that has major risks. And when the price of the, of the stablecoin falls to a certain point below a dollar, it essentially goes into what they call a death spiral. And UST from Terra had that happen a few, a few weeks ago, and it had pretty big ripple effects across the entire industry. For us, what it did was it kind of renewed our confidence in the, the stablecoin mechanism that we chose three years ago when we started building on Polkadot. And we chose this because it was proven safe, and we knew that as the fundamental like native stablecoin of Polkadot, we needed to have something that was safe and, and kind of reliable. Um, I can kind of make this, I know I've been talking for a while, but the way that these over-collateralized stablecoins work, they're actually backed by real crypto assets like things like Bitcoin, ETH, DOT, but it's over-collateralized. So the minimum you can do is take out $100 of stablecoin for every $200 of collateral. This is clearly not something that you would do in the real world with a bank. You would never give 100 k to take out a $50,000 $50, loan. But what this does is because these stablecoins are backed by crypto assets that can fluctuate in price, it helps hedge against price fluctuations in the underlying collateral that are backing that stablecoin. If it falls below a certain price, if the collateral falls below a certain price, liquidations, are, liquidations automatically happen and sell off those collaterals to maintain the kind of equilibrium of solvency of the actual protocol itself. Um, I can, if you guys have questions about this, I'll, I'll hang around. I know that that's a lot, um, but that's kind of the three categories of stable coins and, and what's going on right now. We had uh, a bunch of questions come in during um, you know, your uh, explanation there, and one I think is is most interesting, at, at least for for you guys on stage here, is from Jesse. Uh, how is the UK use case with current and Akala going to prove that UX has been the barrier for wider adoption of Web three? Yeah, I think from current's perspective, if you look at what the state of the art is right now, um, it's it's pretty brutal um, if you want to interact with a lot of these apps. Like if you just walk through the steps of, for example, lending on Compound, um, first you have to kind of have this educational burden of what are all the components and what are the things I need to do. And then you need to start technically executing probably four or five steps to actually get there. So you have to open up an account where you can you know, source, let's say you're doing USDC, so maybe open up a Coinbase account, um, you convert to USDC, then you install a Chrome plugin. When you install that Chrome plugin, you have to figure out how to back up those keys. Um, you have to sort of understand the consequences of getting that wrong. Um, if you don't get it right, what happens if you lose your laptop? All, all sorts of things. You have to make a transfer. You have to then pay gas fees. And at the end of the day, like the educational burden, the technical burden, and ultimately the economic burden of doing this all on your own when you're working in you know, environments that cost hundreds of dollars per transaction if you're operating in the Ethereum world, for example, just makes it impossible from a UX standpoint to actually interact, especially if you want to put like $1 to $2 at work just to try things out. Um, and so what we're going to be able to do eventually is sort of bridge all of those different barriers. Um, and I think it'll be, you know, it'll be very clear when you go from that extremely high sort of educational burden, high technical burden, high economic burden to, you know, a few clicks next to your paycheck. Um, that's like a complete night and day. Um, so yeah, I think that's, we're going to, we're going to prove it by just showing that it's possible. And I think the proof will really just be in the experience of it itself. Yeah. The other thing really quick is just right now with, with these kind of, applications that are, that are built natively on the blockchain, 
we can see exactly how many users are using all of these DeFi applications, and it's not it's it's not a staggering number. What this is the way that we're going to be able to prove this use case as well is to be able to show through current, and then in the future, all these companies that are integrating with with crypto, just the sheer number of users that are going to be exposed, even to think the simple thing like buying and selling crypto, but then the next step of actually participating in this new economy, using DeFi, participating in DeFi. So that's another just metric that we'll be watching is just how many users are actually interacting with this new kind of alternative financial system that's being built. Last question here that just came in from Joe. Do you think that there's going to be a stablecoin shakeout? Does government regulation threaten non-fiat-backed stablecoins? I think from like a uh, macro perspective, um, the non the so the, the second category that Dan was talking about, the over collateralized. There, the only way you can really control that is probably by shutting down um, exchanges. So like shutting off sort of the bridges for people to get access um, to these things. But that has proven to be pretty ineffective so far um, in the cases that it's been attempted. Um, on the fiat-backed, I think absolutely that's where the most regulation will happen. There's a reason why you know CBDCs is one of the subcategories of, of this track, which is I think really what's going to happen is there will be government-led initiatives to create these um, fiat stablecoins. So yeah, that will be exactly the same as, as regulation, which is eventually I do expect there's probably going to be not so many fiat-backed stablecoins. In fact, there'll probably be one per fiat eventually. Yeah, I, I agree. So the decentralized stablecoins, I think at the same risk of Bitcoin being shut down applies to fully decentralized stablecoins. This is another reason why a lot of these teams, including Polkadot and Akala, are, are focusing on decentralization first to make sure that the way that the network is operated with nodes is as decentralized as possible, just like Bitcoin is extremely decentralized. What happened with Terra, I think, showed for me the importance of collateralization behind stablecoins. I think that's clear. Um, but what, what I think is going to happen with fiat-backed stablecoins, in a similar fashion, these black swan are just massive events that happen. The same thing is bound to happen for fiat-backed stablecoins. The moment someone like the UK or the US shuts down a stablecoin in that country, it'll have a massive ripple effect within the ecosystem. And suddenly people will start to realize why people like Gavin would have been talking about decentralization since 2014. Um, so I think over the next... 10 years, we're, I don't know how soon it will happen, but I think this is something that's inevitable for, the, for just the evolution of crypto and, and stable coins. Well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Dan, Trevor, thank you very much. The audience, give them a hand. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.